This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram, and with me is State Representative Andrew Fink, representing the 58th District, and uh, to be on the ballot in the fall in the 35th District after remapping. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, we talked last time uh, about these uh, these cases that have been brought on abortion in the state involving Governor Whitmer, involving also Planned Parenthood. And uh, since then, we, we know the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, has decided that she will not represent the state in that case. And she will not have anyone from the office to represent the state in the case. And the question we asked last time was, well, who will be defending the case? Are we any clearer to knowing an answer on that? I know there are, there are conversations about, you know, the House Republicans or Republicans of the state having to get involved to actually, you know, appoint someone to do the defending in this case, because the attorney general whose job it is to do this has said she's not going to do the job. Yeah, I do think that if it's necessary, that probably is what will happen, Scott. But it it hasn't happened yet. And and so uh, as, I guess I'm actually not not too different. My answer is not too different from the last time we talked, which is if it gets to that point, that is kind of normally what happens. And, and it would be my expectation that if, if it's necessary, uh, that that's a step that I think my caucus is ready to take. The other reason I actually talked with Ingrid Jacks from the De- Detroit News recently, she wrote a column about this last week, uh, is the Planned Parenthood case in which the judge involved is a longtime donor to Planned Parenthood and actually represented Planned Parenthood in a separate case back in 1997. If she does not recuse herself from the case, only parties can make an objection. The parties right now would again be Planned Parenthood or the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, who both who seem to be just pleased with the situation that might be another reason why Republicans would inject themselves into that case too, correct? Yeah, I mean, what you need, the, the thing is, typically in, in litigation, you're looking for adversarial relationships. I mean, we we have the system we refer to as the adversarial system. We actually think we get good, reliable results by having people who disagree be the litigants. So when you have a situation where the litigants, you know, the, the parties on either side don't appear to actually have any dispute, uh, you you do create problems. I mean, this is sort of this is one that I mean, re, you know, recusal comes up in cases uh, in me, you know in different contexts that are a little less maybe politically charged than this one. But it you are relying on those parties having strong opinions that are different from one another if you're going to get something like a recusal mm-hmm. motion, or just if you're going to get good good uh, a good testing of the facts. I mean, something I I sometimes think about and, and point out to folks is. Um, you know, when when um, when Abraham Lincoln was riding circuit, they would show up in a town on a Monday and by Friday they'd, they'd have tried the cases. So, you know, they'd pick up their clients, you know, it'd be a dispute over a property line or a contract or a tort or whatever. And by Friday they were ready to try the case. They had their witnesses ready and they and they went ahead and rolled. And, and that's very different from how we do things today. And they tried way more cases probably. Uh, we now kind of think that cases are generally going to be settled out. I think that uh, the, the number is in both federal court and state court, about one out of 50 cases filed are actually tried civil cases. And the, the, the kind of downside of that method is that it probably doesn't strike people as, as odd that you got these two parties who, who basically don't have a big disagreement here mm-hmm. because they don't really intend to try this case. But if you think about what the word trial means, uh, it, it, I mean, you, you the, in this case, the word try is sort of tested out. 
right? So when you have two adversarial parties and you try the case, you test out their versions of the facts and they can be 100% opposed. And you still think at the end of the day that this system produces, again, pretty good justice uh, because we force you to prove your case, you know, against the other, the other side um, uh, trying to disrupt your case. Uh, and in a civil case where the uh, uh, burden of proof is more likely than not, you know, it's, it's very easy. But even in like a criminal case where the burden of proof is much higher, you know, the defense doesn't have to prove anything, but they do have the chance to interrupt the proofs, you know, to, to, dist- to uh, disturb the proofs that the prosecution is putting on, even if they don't put on any of it of their own, which they don't have to in a criminal case. So we think that this adversarial relationship produces better justice mm-hmm. because it forces you to really lay your case out. So in this, this is a good example of how when you don't have a truly adversarial uh, set of parties to a case, you really wind up questioning how valuable this entire experience is going to be. And so uh, Judge Gleisher's previous uh, involvement with Planned Parenthood and donations to Planned Parenthood. You know, I, I saw I saw this. It obviously raises questions. I haven't looked at whether there have been comparable cases in the past. I haven't looked at, I haven't dug the, the uh, canons of judicial ethics out to see whether I think it's just prima facie obvious that she should step down. I mean, the, one of the difficulties is um, it's often the case that people want judges to step down in cases where it's not necessary and not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And the the problem with encouraging people to step down too frequently is that you need these judges to do these cases. I mean, you know, similarly in the legislature, uh, you know, if you're a farmer, we need you to vote on the ag bills. In fact, your experience is part of what we expect you to bring to the courtroom. Different, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to the legislature, different in a courtroom, of course, where uh, a non-biased hearing of the facts, I mean, you're not there to be an advocate if you're the judge, you're there to be non-biased. Um, and, uh, you know, disinterested in the, in the sense that you don't have an interest in the outcome. So, uh, it, it does raise questions, which it would be good for the litigants to be actively engaged in answering. And unfortunately that's just not likely to happen. State Representative Andrew Fink with us, 58th District Branch in Hillsdale Counties here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Legislature, House and Senate is back after a little spring break, uh, in terms of big picture things and you know, the budget is still being worked down, what, what are the sort of big picture things that might be coming up here in the next few weeks? Yeah, the budget is the biggest picture thing. And the, 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 the place where we're at right now with that is that the uh, subcommittees in the respective chambers of legislature are passing the budgets out of, out of subcommittee. And uh, once that's done and, and the uh, chambers have kind of settled in on their uh, versions, then the subcommittee chairs will, uh, will go to conference and compare their budgets and see what they can come up with. Uh, and, and from there, once the legislature has kind of a picture of, of what the budget's going to be from its perspective, the negotiations, negotiations with the governor kind of become the final mm-hmm. step in that dance. You know, traditionally this has been worked out. I mean, there's obviously a lot of tension right now, so we'll see what happens And different parts of the budget probably are going to draw different levels of, uh, controversy. Do we have yet revenue estimates for the year as, as compared to last year when everyone was somewhat surprised by not just the money coming from Washington, but also the fact that receipts were higher than anticipated during the, some of the COVID experience? Yes. Uh, I don't remember now the number, the, the precise number, but it's, it's deja vu all over mm-hmm. again, another year of probably more money than anybody expected us to have. Uh, there are a few things that I know you're concerned with and, and working on. One of those is uh, this idea of a secondary road patrol bill, some dedicated money from the liquor tax. Um, you know, for us in Hillsdale County, where we're, I don't know what the numbers would say if we're understaffed or not, but sometimes there are very, very, very few 
sheriffs available to cover the entirety of Hillsdale County. What might this do? Why is it important, not just for areas like us, but also other areas across the state? Yeah, so Hillsdale, actually, I talked to the sheriff last week, and staffing is not as bad here as it has been and as it is in other uh, rural departments, but that's just today. I mean, it, it you know, one or two guys leaving when you only have 12 or 13 deputies, and all of a sudden you've got a, a different problem on your hands. And, of course, usually if you have 12 or 13, that actually doesn't mean you have 12 or 13 fully available right now because, you know, things happen guys get injured that's happened here that kind of thing so it would be uh it would be a little naive to think that just because today the numbers are okay means doesn't mean that they'll they'll be a problem later and over in branch county i think they're still short on deputies i know they're still short in the jail um so having adequate funding for law enforcement is it's definitely a pressing issue in this district and when i was running for this job and and uh when i was elected stabilizing the secondary road patrol or really what I think of as, as just rural policing. Um, I identify that as a, as a priority and I'm, I'm grateful that uh, several members of my caucus share the priority uh, because it looks like we have a good plan in place. So the idea here is that we dedicate some money from the annual liquor taxes towards uh, secondary road funding so that it isn't something we have to negotiate into the budget every year. A few years ago, Governor Whitmer vetoed a line item for secondary road patrol it's the equivalent of about a deputy in each of my two counties here, Branch County and Hillsdale County, and probably something similar in Lenawee County, which I'm uh, working to represent part of. Um, and the the idea that you would put policing on, uh, you know, in a negotiated budget and make it a chit that somebody's got to cash in, I just found it deeply offensive and honestly uh, more cynical than, than even – uh, other things I've identified as cynical in Governor Whitmer's history. I think that was really, really offensive. So I'm I'm glad that we have a plan to kind of avoid that. And to your point about whether it really only impacts rural areas, I mean, that's where this, that's where this policing kind of tends to be seen on secondary roads. Uh, but it means that there's a, there's either a guy available out there or there's not. And if you're visiting, you know, if you're camping in uh, Branch County or Hillsdale County in the summertime and you're from, you know, say one of our big three or four uh, counties in Metro Detroit or Kent County or someplace where uh, there are there are hundreds of thousands of residents and consequently, you know, hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of police officers. Uh, it probably would be a surprise to you to find out that, it, you know, at night in Branch County, a lot of the times the only the only available police agency out in the countryside is the state police. Mm -hmm. They're covering multiple counties from one post. And when somebody gets there to you, uh, it's hard to say and you don't know when it's going to be. Not, a, not as big of a deal in a case like this, but, you know, when I hit a deer uh, sometime last year or the year before, uh, I sat there for like an hour and a half waiting for somebody to show up. You what, thought it was bad for you. How about the deer? Yeah, actually, yeah, the, <laughs> the deer uh, the deer had a worse hour and a half yeah. than I did and was grateful. He was probably as grateful as I was when the police officer showed up, if you understand what I mean. But the, uh, the, the upshot of all of it is just the if you're traveling through a rural area or camping or, or whatever, uh, you actually would like there to be somebody on the other end of the phone when you make a phone call to the police agencies too. So I really think it benefits everybody in the whole state, you know, people people traveling around the state and certainly those of us who live out here. And we need that kind of support. And it's nice to see a, a, a policy change being made that you know directly takes into account what those of us who represent rural and sometimes seemingly forgotten areas of the state uh, are, are saying, you know, we show up and we say, hey, this is a real problem for us. Our, uh, our our constituents know that they need these services delivered. And seeing the governor veto it at one point was, I think, a wake up call. So it's a, it's a great change. I'm, I'm very excited about it. 
Uh, before we leave the subject of law enforcement, uh, crime polling shows is just under inflation in many places in terms of the issues that, that will have an impact on November elections across the country. There are some states like Illinois where that's going to be a major issue in the gubernatorial race. What do you see here in, in Michigan when it comes to the issue of crime? Is there any discussions in Lansing? Do things need to be done, reform? Is it going to be as high profile of an issue here as perhaps it might be in other states? Well, in a sense, I hope it doesn't become as high a profile of an issue because I hope we don't start seeing uh, um, incidents of crime take off the way they have in some other parts of the country. Uh, but I do I do have concern for that. I mean, we're not immune to, to trends like that. And inflation probably, by the way, I mean, economic circumstance certainly has some correlation to crime rates. So uh, if we don't have a stable economy, you're going to see less stability in other areas, including the crime rate, I think. Um Yes, I think it is an issue that has to be, uh, it has to, it, it's sort of like tending your garden, if nothing else. But it, honestly, at this point, I think we do have some increases out there. So the state police budget, which includes uh, some monies that will be administered through uh, the state police towards uh, all parts of the state, not just the state, it won't, won't all necessarily be spent by the state, state police themselves, includes uh, recruiting, training, uh, retention, uh incentives at rates that we really haven't seen before so it's a, it's a it's a much larger budget than uh typically we'd get actually speaking of that i mean some of that is the fact that there is more money in the budget overall but mm -hmm. it's also a need that we've seen uh needs to be addressed so increasing funding for school resource officers trying to figure out a way to make sure that that works for rural areas as well increasing funding again for recruiting and retention i mean the state police are feeling a pinch on recruiting but they feel it less probably than uh uh, local departments do. Uh, you know, I'm told by by the uh, police chiefs and sheriffs that I talk to here that uh, uh, um, openings that 10 years ago would have attracted dozens or even hundreds of applications are now attracting, you know, far less than half of what they used to get. And I do think that some of it is the way in which policing has been criticized generally for the mm -hmm. last few years. Uh, that's basically been a left-wing attack, but it's been adopted by some of the mainstream media as well uh, or facilitated by the mainstream media to the point that, you know, I, as a, as a kid who grew up in a police officer's family, you know, my dad's a retired police officer, and that was something that I never hesitated to, to be proud about. Um, and I don't think that my kids would if I were a police officer either, but, but if you're maybe living in a place where you're hearing more of that more consistently, um, it's a disincentive for people to, to get involved. Um, and it used to be, I think, one of those professions that every little kid thought was something they might want to do. I mean, if you think of it this way, policing, you know, is an everyday activity. Uh, but little kids would would say policing almost in the same way they'd say, I want to be an astronaut or a mm -hmm. cowboy. I mean, it's uh, not exactly a romance, but an honor associated with that job. I want to be a police officer and keep my family, my community safe. And uh, making sure that that policing is an honored respected profession that can feed a family uh has to be a, a top priority because if we if we don't do it that way at some point people are going to find uh find out what happens if you don't have adequate policing in every neighborhood in the country uh so yes i think it's a, it's an area where where we have to be thoughtful and prioritize it if i could jump just real quick from that comment i uh, we were disc discussing about the the revenue mm -hmm. 
another issue that's sort of under the surface right now in Lansing is uh, some kind of tax relief where we've got right. this this extra revenue. We've, we've seen it's like 40 or 41 states thus far that have either, you know, uh, reduced taxes or rebate checks going back yeah. out to, uh, to, to, to to residents. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, there hasn't been a single thing that's happened in Michigan for residents, correct? Well, I wouldn't exactly say nothing's happened. I'd just say that uh, the, leg- the, the legislature has adopted a couple plans that the governor has rejected. Right. Uh, and I I'm I want there to be a constructive move towards some kind of tax relief. I just don't think it's right that the the state has record revenues, um, unexpectedly record revenues. And we don't turn around and say, well, we probably need to to show our citizens that we know that this is all their money and they know better what to do with with uh extra money than than the state does i mean the state needs the money that it needs and it doesn't need the money that it doesn't need i mean i know that's a tautology right it's i'm just saying something that seems obvious but it's not as obvious evidently to some folks who don't look at returning some of this money to taxpayers as the uh as the natural thing to do so i think that that's something that uh we've got to continue to take seriously the people deserve to have some tax relief um if, if for no other reason, I mean, there are some taxes, we've talked a little bit about how the gas tax is like a fixed number, but mm-hmm. the sales tax, is, you know, whatever. Well, with the inflation doing what it, the rate of inflation doing what it's it's doing, uh, that should color, I think, this conversation as well. How do we adjust for the fact that, you know, a dollar is worth less than it was, and that's not going to go backwards. State Representative Andrew Fink with us, 58th District here in uh, Michigan, Branch and Hillsdale counties. One last uh, topic, I know you're working currently toward a, a bill on a housing policy across the state. And when we talk about sort of regulations, municipal regulations on housing, sometimes it's zoning, sometimes it's it's even building materials. What kind of changes are you exploring here in, in, in this piece of legislation? Yeah, so it, it, I am working uh, with, with some other members and, and some, uh, some groups with some expertise on this issue. Uh, just trying to get the rate of the, the amount of market rate housing uh, up in Michigan. We want our housing to be affordable and abundant, uh, but the best way to do that is to allow folks to meet the needs of the market uh, in in ways that they're sometimes prevented now from doing doing now. I actually uh, genuinely don't think that very many of the municipalities in our area are throwing up the same barriers that are being thrown up in other places. But I do think that there's downstream effects by raising the cost of construction, uh, preventing firms from from being interested in coming into this market generally, that kind of thing, that keep our home prices higher than they need to be, uh, basically as a ripple effect of the way that they're artificially inflated in more uh, heavily populated areas of the state. So some of the changes I, I'm looking at are, are procedural. If you're trying to turn a cornfield into a subdivision, uh, once you have your plan in place with the with the municipality, I mean, I'm not, not not really changing that method. I mean, the the municipality still has involvement, mm-hmm. you know, through its zoning code uh, to to get plans approved and what have what have you for different kinds of developments. But if you're halfway through it and and all of a sudden uh, somebody says, well, what about uh, uh, a parking study or what about a, a traffic study or what about a water study or something? Uh, that then throws a wrench into the whole development. That just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right that somebody who's trying to deliver housing goes through the the initial steps with the, with the uh, local uh, governmental unit, and then halfway through the project, a wrench is thrown in that causes them to pause, uh, causes them to spend more money on a new study, changes what their margins are going to be, and just overall makes it more more difficult and therefore less likely that housing is going to get built. 
So uh, that's a, it might seem like kind of a boring thing, but at the end of the day, that is exactly the kind of thing that keeps somebody from saying, Hey, I've got this money. I've got this capital. I'd like to see this change made. I'd like to put people into houses that they want to live in. Uh, and that can't do it related. That's a little more substantive minimum home sizes. Some municipalities have requirements that uh, a new home has to be built to a certain size. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to live in a larger home. Not everybody needs a larger home. But if we only allow larger homes to be built, we're driving up the cost for everybody who doesn't need something like that uh, as well. And what you know, what what I think we need to realize is, look, when we get additional market rate housing out there, if I build a new you know subdivision of three thousand square foot homes the person who moves into that home out of their 1800 square foot home, isn't burning it down. Somebody else wants to buy that house and live in it. And if that guy moved out of, out of an apartment that was, you know, 900 square feet, well, somebody wants to live in that too. I mean, we're not at a point where, uh, where we have uh, excess housing. We're at a point where people are living in housing that they actually would prefer alternative housing too. But this is what we have. Our housing stock is very old. That certainly is true in, in, in my district too. Mm-hmm. Our housing stock is old. It's tired. It needs to be, uh, it needs to have more variety and it needs to be built according to what working families actually want and can afford. So letting the, the market satiate the, that, that need is, that's what we have to be oriented towards. That's what my package would do. State Representative Andrew Fink from the 58th District Branch and Hillsdale Counties. If people need to get a hold of you or the office, questions or concerns, what's the best way to do it? Go to repfink.com. Repfink.com. State Representative Andrew Fink, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. More of our interviews and conversations on our SoundCloud page. Go to soundcloud.com. Search for WRFH Radio Free Hillsdale. And I'm Scott Bertram on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.